gotta love that. Faith turns into action until it becomes not only a part of our lives, but a new way to live. What a wonderful calling uh, to make faith a part of our life, a way of life. You're going to love this new series. James uh, is a book found in the New Testament, and it's very practical, deals with everyday issues uh, from how to control your mouth, to drawing close to God, to understanding eternity, to having more faith, to understanding wealth, to how to make works a part of your life, but still maintain a lifestyle of grace. It teaches us how to be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. Some people call it the Proverbs of the New Testament because it's just dealing with everyday wisdom. And we're going to take uh, nine weeks to study uh, this wonderful book. Uh, some, um, you, could, you could sit down, you could read it in one sitting, 12 to 15 minutes. It's five chapters, but it deals with nine uh, major topics, nine major themes. So we're going to take nine weeks and do each of the themes. So excited about this. Because uh, James is going to grow us all up. Okay, it's going to, uh, you want to be discipled, you want to become a Christ follower, a mature Christ follower, James will do it to you because it's pretty hard hitting. Uh, this book is written by James. Now, there was a disciple named James. This isn't him. This is James, the brother of Jesus. Uh, Mary was conceived of the Holy Spirit and gave birth to Jesus. So Joseph wasn't technically Jesus' dad. Uh, He was born of the Holy Spirit through the Virgin Mary. Then after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph get married, and then they have more kids. And one of them is this guy named James, who's the brother, or you could call it the half-brother of Jesus. And he's a guy who would actually end up Uh, being a pastor of a church in Jerusalem. He shows up throughout the scriptures. So he didn't become a Christ follower when they're all together living at home. He didn't even become a Christ follower when Jesus was doing his ministry, performing miracles. James became a Christ follower after the resurrection. And he sees Jesus come back to life, sees the crowds following him, and he says, wow, this guy, my brother, really is the Messiah, the King of Kings, he's God, and he he writes this beautiful practical book. Right off the bat, he says hello and just dives into two topics, and those two topics are trials and temptations. That's the title of the message today, Facing Trials and Temptations, and we all experience this. We're all facing a trial. We're all being tempted. If you're wondering, man, does church have anything for me today? Is this message for me? Yes, it is for everybody today. James 1, verse 1. Let's dive in. Let's go to work. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, many kinds of trials. We have so many trials represented in this room today. Some of us have lost a loved one. Some of us dealing with a health issue. Some of us are struggling to take care of our family. Some of us out of work. Some of us just exasperated by our jobs and the people we work with. And so much more. So many trials. Right off the bat, he says, we're all all going through these things called trials. And trials are different from temptations. Trials are something that could be used by God 
to make an impact in our life. Trials teach us something and can be used for good. You ready for this? God does not tempt you. Absolutely not, never. God does not tempt you. Even Jesus prayed, God, deliver us from the evil one. But God will absolutely allow trials into your life, a testing of your faith, because God sees the values in trial, the value in trials. And before you think badly about God, we do the same thing, you do the same thing. If you have employees or if you lead someone, especially if you have children, well, you, you allow them, test them, try them, allow them to go through a little bit of misery so something powerful is produced in them. I mean, that's what a good parent does. I remember when I was a kid, I'd wake up, I'd say, Dad, can I skip school today? No, you can get dressed. That's what you can do. And he would get me up early, take me to school on the weekends. We get up even earlier and get ready for church. So as a parent, you allow them to be tested and tried. And you can't go to school without tests because tests reveal something. Tests are revealing whether or not you need to redo the material or if you can go on to the next grade. And God is interested. Okay, get this. God is highly motivated in growing you up, getting you to make the grade, developing you into something that is unshakable in a shakable world. He is highly motivated to disciple you and grow you up into something that doesn't conform to the pattern of the world, but they can make a difference and they can have faith that's unshakable. He wants you to experience life and life to the full. Look at Proverbs 17.3. It says it this way, the crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. Both of those mean you heat those elements up, you get them melting, impurities rise to the top, you skim off the impurities, and you're left with pure gold or pure silver. In the same way, the Lord will test you and allow you to go through some heat so he can skim off the impurities, and you have, you're coming out pure gold, everybody. Let's go, let's go to it verse by verse and study it. So when facing a trial, number one, you want to recognize what's really going on. Write that in. You've got to recognize what's really going on. One of the tragedies of a test or a trial is that the problem itself hijacks the learning experience. So you never see what could happen because you're distracted by the thing. And you almost have to get over the distraction of the bad thing, of the trial, of the suffering, so you can learn the lesson. Because tucked inside that suffering, tucked inside that trial, tucked inside that financial despair, that mean neighbor, that mean coworker, tucked inside that marital problem, that issue with your kids, whatever it is, there's a lesson. And that's what James is saying here. Verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Circle perseverance. It's turning you into something. All tests and trials develop this character quality inside of you. Patient endurance, perseverance, the ability to go through that trial and not act like you used to. And some of us are trying to run. We're trying to run from the very school of character that God has given us as a gift. So we got to recognize what's really going on. And number two, we got to cooperate with God's growth process. He's going to do it whether we like it or not. Because he's a good dad and just like a good parent doesn't bail their kid out every time. And just like a good parent is going to send their kid to school, God is, going, is good and he wants to grow us up. 
So we're more discipled, more mature than the world. He's a good, good father, not a good, good Santa Claus. He loves you and wants to develop the best in you. That's why this next verse says, Perseverance must finish its work. Verse 4, Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Not lacking anything. Honestly, some of my trials and some of your trials are the answers to your own prayers. Like we prayed, God, I want everything you have for me. I want to be Christ-like. I don't want my life to look like the world. I want to follow Jesus. God, I want my family to follow Jesus. I want my finances to be biblical. I want my job to be fulfilling. Then God lays out the pathway, and the Bible talks about this a lot. And unfortunately, sometimes it's avoided by Christians or the church. But the truth is, there are a lot of verses in your Bible that deal with the value of suffering. Paul says it this way, Romans 5 verse 3, we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. This is the truth. Notice it says that we need to see the value in suffering because it produces hope. So rejoice in the trial, rejoice in the suffering, because guess what? When you're in the middle of that suffering, when you're in the middle of that trial, guess what's on the way? Hope is on the way. What you really need is on the way. So rejoice. Peter said it this way, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by the fire, may be proved genuine. And may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And I love that it says that our faith is worth more than gold. Because we go through all kinds of hardship for gold, for money, for a paycheck. I mean, anybody else work hard to get paid? I mean, we do. We'll do anything. We'll, get, we'll work hard to get a paycheck. And I'll tell you, I'll do whatever I've got to do go through whatever hardship I've got to go through to get more faith because it's worth more than money. It's worth more than a paycheck. It's worth more than gold. The best things in my life came out of the darkest moments in my life. It doesn't make those things good, but God worked them for good in my life because it forced me into a lifestyle of seeking God and being dependent on God The best things in my life came out of the darkest moments of my life. Losing friends to death. Seeing friends give up on the faith. Seeing friends leave the church. Losing an unborn child. Being gossiped about. Being misrepresented. Being misunderstood. And just like Peter, although I had to suffer grief in in many kinds of trials, they came so that my faith of greater worth than gold would be proved genuine and result in the praise and glory and honor of Jesus Christ. So I got to recognize what's really going on. I got to cooperate with the process. And number three, ask ask for God's help. Ask for God's help. And this point may seem unnecessary, but it's so frustrating to me and it boggles my mind how long it takes me sometimes to turn to God. I mean, it's like, 
We'll try everything else on the planet before we'll turn to God or ask God for his help. James says, I got a tip for you. You going through a trial, ask God about it. Turn to God about it. Verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. Circle the word wisdom. Because wisdom is the ability to apply what you probably already know. You see, I would bet that most of us coming to church this weekend didn't need to learn anything new. We needed the wisdom and the courage to apply it. Which means this is the prayer you pray if you're in a trial. If you're in a trial right now, it's not, God, get me out of this trial. No, here's the better prayer. Lord, what wisdom do you have for me in this? And then listen and let God give you wisdom in this situation. And you know, you can actually speed up how long the trial lasts by learning, letting God teach you, get instilling you the wisdom and character that can be learned from going through something like what you're going through. And you say, God, even though I don't know what's going on, Lord, teach me to trust you and everything. And if that's your prayer, you will emerge out of your prayer times with a new confidence. Uh, you will emerge from your prayer times a brand new man, brand new woman. Well, this is why worship is so important and gathering with the church every week and worshiping is so important because did you know that the songs we do here are battle tested? They're fit for a battle, I'll tell you. Uh, you get some bad news from a doctor, you have a rough day, you're in the middle of a trial, your turnaround is in turning to God and worshiping. Earlier this week, I, I left the hospital uh, one day and I was just down. I was distraught, I was worried, I was dejected. I just felt depleted on every level. I got in the car, down in the valley, when waters rise, I'm still believing, hope is alive. And all through the struggle and darkest day, I'll remember the empty grave. And oh no, you never let go through the calm and through the storm. Oh no, you never let go in every high and every low. Because after all, you are constant and not for a moment will you forsake me. I'm telling you, I got out of that car a brand new man. I mean, with something you can't buy off the street, with something you can't find anywhere else. But the good God, the God of heaven, when you turn to him, will draw near to you and give you exactly what you need. So you got to ask for God's help. You got to do it. And you got to keep a good attitude. That's number four. It's interesting to me where James goes with this next. Maybe not what you'd expect, but it's in verse six. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Meaning he should have faith. You want to know a word that you can interchange with faith? 
attitude. My faith is your worldview. It's your outlook on something. It doesn't look possible, but I'm going to trust God. That's attitude. That's faith. Where there is no way, where you don't see a way, you know God sees a way. And so you're going to trust God. Hello, that's what salvation is. There was no way I was getting into heaven. There was no way I was reconnecting with God. There was no way I was coming back from the dead. None. God made a way where there was no way. That's faith. That's attitude. I come today with the attitude, God makes a way where there seems to be no way. James says, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. God's saying, I'm going to need you in the middle of the trial to see what's going on, to ask God for help. And attitude is key because you're going to have those days where you don't see it, you don't feel it, you don't know it. But that attitude, that faith, propels you into God's best for your life. Watch what happens next. Verse 12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. But as you turn the page, literally with the next breath, he says, let me tell you about temptations because they're quite different. And while a trial can be from God, and used by God, temptations are never from God. They're the enemy's attempt to lure you away, and that's really the best definition of a temptation, is a lure into a fishing pond. He casts it out there, he brings it in front of your face, and he says, come on, you know you want this. You know this looks good. You know this feels right, but it has a hook in it. And the devil will make sure that you have the opportunity to do something you know you really shouldn't do, but he'll make it look so good that it seems unresistible. All temptation is one goal, one goal, and that's to get you away from God so it can mess up your relationship with God. And James teaches us four points on temptation. When you're being tempted, you need to, number one, recognize the source. Let's be clear, the devil does not make you do it. No, he just gives you the opportunity to do it. You didn't have to bite, but man, he made it look good. That's his job. He did it to Jesus. We see it throughout scripture. He can't make you do it. It's your choice. Verse 13, when tempted, so not trials, temptations, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. It says when tempted, not if, but when, which is just something all of us, every single one of us will experience. It's not going to end up being everything. Listen, there's 99% of the things that the devil can't get you to do on on your worst day, right? But we all have that one area. I know what it is for me. You know what it is for you. And he's going to cast that lure, a custom made lure right into your vision. And it's custom made for you. And it's packed full of promise, but inside is a hook and, and evil. Number two, we need to understand the process of temptation. So you've got to recognize the source, and you've got to understand the process. Uh, if you know it, how it happens, you're better off. The devil's got no new tricks. It's the same stuff. It's the age-old story. You need to know the process. James 1 verse 14, But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away, and enticed. 
then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. So let's just, let's just pull that out, and what's the process? The first is temptation. You're going to be tempted. You can't avoid it. Never associate the amount of temptation you receive with your spirituality. Just because you're tempted does not mean that you're far from God. Jesus was tempted. Hebrews 4 says he was tempted on all points, yet he never sinned. He experienced every temptation there was out there. Temptation in and of itself is not bad. In fact, if you're being tempted, you could take that as a compliment. Because, hello, if you're not button heads with the devil every once in a while, you're going the same direction. So when people tell me, Rylan, I'm just, I'm not tempted anymore. No problems, no temptations. I get very nervous. I get very scared for them. So you have this temptation phase, but then it goes to another level, and this one is bad. Let's call it fantasy. Fantasy. This is where we think, what would it be like if, if I drank it, if I ate it, if I slept with it, bought it, watched it, whatever, and we rationalize it, my life would be better. It's really not that bad. Isn't it interesting how we can rationalize our sin, but we look at someone else's sin and we go, oh, I'd never do that. I want to hate my own sins more than I hate the sins of others who sin differently than I do. Write this word next to this word fantasy, eyes. It's all about the eyes. Jesus was all about the eyes. Matthew 6, verse 22 The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? You control the eye, you control the game. And this is where it's imperative to have Christian sisters or Christian brothers come alongside you and help you in this area. Jesus said, if you look at something or someone lustfully, you've already done the deed in your heart. And if you don't stop it right there, you're going to go to this third stage, and that's moving toward sin. You haven't sinned yet. James says you were dragged away and enticed. So you look at it and you say, yeah, this is good. So you start taking steps towards it because you think the grass is greener. Can I just tell you the grass ain't greener? It looks, it looks good. It looks better. It's not. That's just the devil jiggling it, making it look good. Don't move toward sin. When the Bible addresses how to deal with sin, it uses a word. The word is flee. Not like a bug, like run. Like run from it. 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality. You might say, no, no, I'm courageous. I'm going to stand up to it. No, real courage is saying, I see the bait and I see the hook inside of it. And I see who's on the other end of of that lure and the other end of that line. And I see where this is headed. And I don't really care what all these other fish think. I'm going to turn around and leave. And James says later, you resist him that way. You move, move, leave, flee. The devil will flee from you. And so you got to do whatever you got to do to get out of it. Stop moving towards it. Jesus said, if you got to cut off your arm, cut off your arm. If you got to gouge out your eye, then that's what you got to do. And what's he saying there? He's saying, come on, get serious, get extreme. Come on, let's do this. This is serious. If you got to quit the team, you got to quit the team. If you got to sell the house, if you got to move, if you got to change jobs, that's what you got to do. 
I mean, if you were running towards an oncoming train and I said, hello, turn around, flee, you wouldn't think I was crazy. Jesus saying that's really kind of the situation with sin. A paycheck is not worth your marriage. And that burden is not worth the debt. And some of you have taken a few steps towards sin and you're really close and, and you got to break it off today. Today, you got to stop it today. Get out of it. Run. Flee. Or you will be a trophy on the devil's wall. And so after this temptation phase, this fantasy stage, then moving towards sin... You have the fourth stage, and that's the actual act of sin. This is where you're actually in sin, where you take the bite. And I know this point is discouraging, but let me give you a little hope. The Bible says, a righteous man falls seven times, but he rises again. And God will always give you a second chance. And if you came to church today, and you're acting in sin, you're living in sin, and you know it, God does not look at you and sigh and say, what are you doing coming to church today? He's saying, I'm glad you came because I've got help for you. Hebrews 4 says he sympathizes with your weakness. He's a high priest who looked at you and said, I remember that. I remember that temptation and that was tough. That was hard. And, And Jesus tells God the Father that that one really is hard. That's tough. And we got to help her. We got to help him. And that's how God sees you today. And he loves you with an undying love. And the rest of Hebrews 4 says, so let's approach the throne of grace and find mercy in our time of need. So don't get all discouraged. Just turn around and embrace the mercy of God. That's why you came today. You already came in the door today knowing you were a sinner. You came looking for salvation. You came looking for help. It's time to turn to the throne of grace and receive God's mercy. But if you don't do that, if you don't receive God's mercy, there's another stage. And this is the worst one. It's the stage of death. Sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Like many times you will actually physically die from the choices you made. But at the very least, there's going to be relational death. There's going to be emotional death. There's going to be spiritual death. There's going to be financial death. And the Bible is trying to save you from that. James says, don't go there because the devil is making it look good. But it will lead to death. So what do you got to do? You got to magnify the consequences of sin. I mean, seriously, like write down all the ways that if you continued in that sin or if you acted in that sin, what would be the consequences? The respect you would lose, your kids looking at you differently, the friendships it would cost. And number three, learn how to overcome temptation. James goes on and says, verse 16, don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above. It sounds like he's starting something new, but no, when facing temptation, I know that I got a gift coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. You see, God obligates himself to get you out of the mess. God says, I'm going to help you two ways. One, I'll never let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, and I'll always give you a way to escape. He's a good God. 
I'll show it to you in scripture. Paul, writing to the Corinthians again, says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. This point is so important. Let me give you some thoughts on how to overcome sin. These aren't in your notes. This is just three things to overcome sin. And number one is avoid harmful influences. You might want to write that down somewhere on your outline. Avoid harmful influences. Which means you just got to make better decisions in all those little areas, like what music you're listening to, what movies you're watching. It's going to be very hard to quit drinking in a bar. It's going to be very hard to quit drinking listening to country music. (laughs) It's not profound, but it's good preaching, right? You know it. Listen, don't ask how far is, is too far. Don't ask where is the line and then live on the line. Listen, if this was the edge of a cliff, do I want to come and stand right next to the edge of the cliff and live my life right next to the edge? No, because I'm going to fall. I'm human. I'm imperfect. I'm going to fall. And if I fall here, I fall to my death. But if I ask not how close can I get to the line, but if I ask, how close can I get to God? How close can I get to God's people? How close can I get to his church and live my life back here? When I fall, I'm going to fall on good ground and be picked back up, rise again with the help of my Christian brothers and sisters. So don't ask how far is too far. Ask how close can I get to God? How close can I get to God's people? Number two, counter temptation with God's word. That's what Jesus did. The devil came to him, tempted him, boom, he had a verse. Devil came, tempted him another way, boom, he had another verse. Number three, develop healthy relationships. That's God's system. That's why we have small groups. That's why we have Celebrate Recovery. That's why we have a dream team. And so many of you are missing out on incredible friendships because you're not serving. I was talking to a guy a while back. Uh, He serves on Saturday nights uh, here at Rockbrook. And uh, he has a very colorful past, but he loves it. He loves it. He's gotten plugged in, serves, loves what he's doing, loves the people that he's with. And he was called a, a while back by his friends from his past to go do something on Saturday night. And he says, no, I, I serve at church on Saturday night. They go, what? Saturday night? He says, yeah, I love it. I absolutely love it. I love the people I serve with. I love the friendships I've found. I love how it fills me up. Totally changed my weekends. It's changing my life. He says, actually, what you guys are going to go do sounds totally boring to me now. That's what Dream Team can do for your life. And you can take the first step to joining the dream team this Sunday. Listen, this, this is our goal. Did you know that you could actually enjoy being a Christian? Did you know that you could actually enjoy church and Christian friends and following Christ? I know, right? That's our goal, for you to live life to the full, to enjoy following Christ. James 1.18 says, he chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. That's Jesus. Jesus, the word. Jesus is the word. The word became flesh. So follow that thought. God sees you tempted and messing up. And what did he do? He sends you Jesus. 
and he sends you Jesus Christ who's madly in love with you. And out of all of creation, we are his prized possession. So don't just fight sin. Don't just resist sin. You got to do more than that. Today I'm celebrating my seventh wedding anniversary. And I give you one tip from being married so far. No, seven years, I don't know. You guys could teach me a lot, I'm sure, but... This is what I've noticed so far, is that the more I just love my wife, the less I think about other women or even really notice all the other lures out there in the pond. The less I love her, the more that all that stuff catches my eye and looks appealing. And the same is true in our relationship with Jesus and the same is true in our faith. Jesus said, if you will just love me, you will obey what I command. So don't run out and just try and resist temptation and and to follow the commandments. Fall in love with Jesus. That's why Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because the byproduct of that relationship, of that trust, of that love, is that you will keep the commandments. So temptation is not a test of your self-control. Temptation is a test of your relationship to Jesus Christ. Temptation is a test of your relationship to God. And that's why I would encourage you and pray for you to, number four, just fall in love with Jesus. Trust Jesus. Will you bow your heads in prayer? I believe that for some of you this weekend, this was a life-saving message. Father, I pray for every person who's going through a trial and they're exhausted. It seems relentless. Give them the courage to pray, God, what are you teaching, teaching me? God, give me wisdom. And let them graduate from this and and move on to their full potential. I pray that you would develop character in Rockbrook this summer uh, as we study this wonderful book. And for the person who's going through temptation, thank you that it's not too much for them to handle. Give them courage today to take the right steps to get out of it. Lord, I pray for every person who needs to make a faith decision that they would give you their whole heart Some of you in here today know that your relationship with God and your trust in Christ is not where it could be. And I'm telling you, it is making this thing a whole lot harder than it has to be. Because God loves you and he invites you to love him back. Jesus, thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us a way out. Today, I commit my life to you, everything. Come live inside of me, change me, be my Lord. I surrender all that I am to you, and I'm going to serve you with the best I've got. It's in your name I pray.